So I am very uh, glad that he's here tonight. So make him feel welcome. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for the uh, for the invitation and the opportunity to be here. I drove, got up early this morning and drove to Hevener and preached down at First Baptist Hevener this morning and was trying to get up to my hotel room and watch the Masters and that preacher kept wanting to talk to me down there. <laughs> and uh, spending the night here tonight, going to speak at an associational meeting in the morning and uh, I'm, I'm glad I could be here with you tonight. Thank you for your support of the of the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma, your faithfulness to the cooperative program, and uh, and uh, I, I want to talk to you just a little bit about uh, about who I am and about the convention. And then I want to open God's Word and and uh, preach to you this evening. You usually get out about eight thirty. Uh, Poto, by the way, I, I the last fifteen years before I. Uh, God called me to this work. I was a pastor at Quell Springs Baptist Church. I, I followed a good Poto boy. Charlie Graves is from Poto, isn't he? Yeah, he talked about Poto all the time. Yeah, so I remembered when I drove through town that this was, this was his home. Uh, I grew up in Pawhuska, Oklahoma, which uh, is a lot like Poto. It's a county seat town of just almost this side, this size and uh, uh, two hours two and a half hours north of Oklahoma City. I went to Oklahoma City one time before I graduated high school. Uh, and I, tr I try to remind the people in our building that not everybody's running back and forth to Oklahoma City once a week. Uh, I grew up in the First Baptist Church of Pahuska, which again is a church about this size, probably not quite as big as this. And, uh, and God, I was saved when I was a child and God called me to preach just as I was finishing high school. And uh, went, to, went to college, met and married my wife while we were students. Uh, between our sophomore and junior year, we've been married 33 years. And uh, just after we got married, I started pastoring churches. It's, I don't really have a too exciting story, really. I started pastoring churches and having babies. And, and, uh, we started off in Marshall County, pastoring a church called Little City Baptist Church, a church of about 40 people, and it's um, where our boys were born, and I was commuting back and forth to Fort Worth to go to seminary during those years. Well, we've got three sons that are um, 27 and 28 and 31 years old, and uh, they're all married out of the house and off the payroll. <laughs> and. Uh, and we've got six grandchildren, and uh, have our seventh next month. So, God's blessed us with our boys. They all, they're all in church. They all love the Lord. They honor us, and we know that's the grace of God. And uh, we give Him thanks for that. So, I pastored uh, churches in Oklahoma for a little over 30 years. The last half of that time, I was in Oklahoma City at Quell Springs Baptist Church, and uh, God blessed us there. It's a good, strong good strong church and um, about a year and a half ago God began to stir in my heart that uh, that he had prepared me and uh, 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 was going to lead me to take this role and so when it was offered to me then I took it. The Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma is really the, a family of the Baptist churches in Oklahoma. There are 1,751 Baptist churches in Oklahoma. 
this, your church is in the top 10% in size. Most of our churches are very small. 60% of our churches do not have a full-time pastor. And, um, uh, and many of them struggle, to be quite frank with you. Um, uh, and we can work together to get what God's called us to do done. In fact, this is how I say our mission. We encourage one another to advance the gospel. Our, our Christian mission is to advance the gospel, to go and make disciples. And, and the reason we cooperate together is to encourage, to support, and challenge each other to advance the gospel here in our state and around the world through our international mission work. And Oklahoma leads in that. I will tell you just a few things that uh, we've made a decision just in the last couple of months to, to uh, begin to send more money to the nations, to the International Mission Board. We'll send a million more dollars out of Oklahoma next year uh, to get the gospel to the, to the billions of people in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. We've got a lot of needs in Oklahoma, but uh, we are a drop in the bucket. And I don't want to stand before the Lord Jesus and tell him we kept too much of that money home. I'd rather give more than we ought to give than keep more than we ought to keep. And that's, I think that's a pretty good life principle. And, um, and so that means that we, we've gotten smaller as a convention. We've gotten leaner. Uh, we have fewer people working for us than there were six months ago. And uh, uh, the money that we keep here, we spend about 45% of it on next generation ministry, which means children through college students. Uh, we, we invest heavily in children, children's camp, children's programming, student ministry. Of course, Falls Creek is part of that and our other camps. And, and Baptist Collegiate Ministry. By the way, you guys got one of the best right here, Bentley. He, he walked up and I was used to seeing him with a group of BCM guys. I thought, well, who is this guy? He, I've seen him before. But my computer wasn't, wasn't processing it fast enough. And, uh, and, and really, I want us to focus on three things here in Oklahoma. We want to raise up pastors and support them. We want to get our churches focused on making disciples. And, and we've got to learn to embrace brokenness as opportunity to advance the gospel. Uh, We've got to raise up pastors, calling out the called, giving them whatever training they need, helping to establish them into work. It's not an easy job. It's a hard job. And, and, and we've got to give them the support that they need. Uh, the um, Make disciples. I don't know why we think we can build strong churches out of weak people. Right? Our churches struggle because our people don't know how to pray. They don't know the word. They've got... They've got too much junk in their brains and instead of God's word in their hearts and minds. And we've got to make disciples. And then embracing brokenness as opportunity. Our communities are broken. A lot of brokenness, right? Uh, families, uh, dysfunction, addiction, poverty. Do you remember the time when Jesus looked across the hillside at a big group of well-dressed, well-behaved, sweet-smelling people and said, look at that opportunity. Do you remember that? You know why you don't remember it? 
Never happened. But he did one time look at a hillside covered with people who were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And when he saw them, he didn't say, would you look at that mess? What's the world coming to? When he saw them, he said, would you look at that harvest? You remember that? Look at that harvest. Jesus said, sick people don't, healthy people don't need a physician. Sick people need a physician. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so every time we see brokenness, uh, that's an opportunity for the gospel. And there's brokenness around us in every community, isn't there? My, the, the primary spiritual influence on my life is my granddad, my mom. My, like I said, I grew up in Pahuska. My dad owned a filling station where we fixed truck tires mainly. And, and uh, he, he really didn't get serious about his faith till just the last 10 or 12 years. But my mother's father was a godly deacon and Sunday school teacher. He'd come and give the Sunday school report before church started, you know. I always look up at him. And uh, when he... When, when he was 11, 12, 13 years old, his mom and dad were trying to make a living as tenant farmers in Pottawatomie County. This is 1911, 12, and 13. As they're trying to make a living because they didn't, they, they went broke. And his mom and dad weren't Christians. They didn't go to church. He didn't know anything about the Lord. During that season, they went broke, and also his dad had a mental breakdown. They checked him into the mental hospital in Norman. He stayed there for the next several years. His wife divorced him. My granddad's mom and dad were never together again as husband and wife. And uh, when they went broke and the family broke apart, they moved away. Moved to Osage County, Pahuska, where I grew up. But during that three years, the lady that lived on the farm next to them started taking my granddad and his little brother to her Sunday school class teaching them about Jesus, showing them the love of Christ, sharing the love of Christ with them. And just before his dad broke down and they moved away, she led him to faith in Christ. And she, she I don't know, maybe she knows now. He's in heaven. Maybe, maybe she knows now. But she never knew this side of heaven. What ever happened to that little boy? She might have thought that all that effort was a waste, but it made all the difference to me, I can tell you. I'm glad that that Baptist woman didn't see that broke, broken family as just a social problem, but she saw it as an opportunity to share the gospel. And uh, it might be that Poto, I'm not, I'm not familiar with Poto, it might be, it might be that everybody here in Poto has it all together, but that's not what I, that's not what I see everywhere else I go. So instead of complaining about the, the way the world's changing and the way our communities aren't what they used to be, I think Jesus would say, lift up your eyes. Look at these fields, white under harvest. That's what I mean when I say embracing brokenness as opportunity for the gospel. Foster care, addiction, prisons and prisoners' families, poverty, those are all opportunities. And, and we want to focus on that. I want to give one little advertisement, and I'm, then we'll look at the word.
We have a great opportunity this November. And I, I want to get it to you early. Circle it on your calendars. On Tuesday night, November 12th, at the end of our annual convention in Oklahoma City, the International Mission Board is going to have a commissioning service in Oklahoma City, a sending service for a group of missionaries. They usually do that in Richmond, Virginia, but they're going to do it in Oklahoma City this year. And uh, when you give to the cooperative program, half that money goes to the International Mission Board. When you give the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, all that money goes to the International Mission Board. A lot of what we do as Southern Baptists is send those missionaries around the world, and you ought to go to one of those sending services, one of those commissioning services. You hear those testimonies, see those missionaries stand up, realize that they're going, many of them, to places they can't even say out loud because they're so difficult and dangerous. And you have a chance to, uh, to get a, a real feeling for what it is you're doing when you're sending those people. So you'll get more and more information about it. But November 12th, it just, doesn't, just only comes around every, every 20 years or so, uh, Oklahoma City, the International Mission Door Board, commissioning service. Last, let, let me just tell you how, uh, I, I, I told you that was my last thing, but I want to make sure you understand that Oklahoma leads the way in, in the number of people that the International Mission Board sends. Uh, the, 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 they, they train missionaries three times a year in, in, in Richmond right before they send them overseas. Last time they trained them, there were 38 missionaries and 12 of them were from Oklahoma and that is a consistent pattern uh, we we have Oklahomans in key leadership positions in the International Mission Board and, and a lot of it is because of BCM and, and and I think about what I just said we invest a lot of money in the next generation and we got more young people saying God wants me to go be a missionary than any other state convention and uh, it's something I think that we want to ask God to continue to give us favor in that area of sending more and more. All right, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. This is Palm Sunday. A week from today is Easter. And uh, uh, I, 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 I think Easter is a great day. It's my favorite day, really. Uh, but you know... Uh, Religious holidays have a way of losing their meaning, right? They become traditions, and they get kind of clouded with culture. About 10 or 12 years ago, a, a mom brought her, brought her two twin, four- or five-year-old kids up to the front of the service after church. It was right at Easter time, either Palm Sunday or Easter, maybe the Sunday after Easter. And she had kind of a smile on her face, and, and she said that she had been to the Mercy Hospital with, and, and when they got off the elevator, uh, at that time there was a statue of Jesus on the cross. And, and one of her little girls just got mesmerized by that statue, just froze her in her tracks. She's looking at that sculpture of Jesus on the cross. And her mom leaned down, and asked that little four or five-year-old girl. She said, honey, do you know who that is? She said, yes. She said, who is it? She said, Jesus. Mama was so proud. And then the little girl continued to say, he died on an Easter egg hunt. <laughs> she, she, 
It's, it's hard to keep that stuff straight, isn't it? Uh, I, I read in the paper that 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 uh, Americans will spend around thirteen billion dollars on Easter. Food, clothes, candy, cards. Just a few years ago, George Barna surveyed and asked people about Easter, and fewer than half said anything at all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and it's not just now, and it's not just Americans, but in all places, all people, religious holidays start losing their focus. When we read the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, we realize that, there, they, that God declared some religious holidays. The, the Feast of the Tabernacles, Pentecost, Passover. And over time, those holidays kind of got blurry. They began to lose their meaning. People participated in them. They marked their calendar and the passing of the year by them. But they kind of tended to forget what they were doing. In fact, remember that the Lord said through Isaiah about those kind of habits and holidays, this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their reverence for me consists of tradition. Well, one of the benefits, I think, of Palm Sunday and the New Testament accounts of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is that it reminds us that if we're not careful, we'll lose our focus, and it protects us from what sometimes I call a kind of a holiday hypocrisy. Remember that Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Jesus rose again. Remember that the Gospels tell us that he said to his disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and it's going to be the last time. When I get there, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested, beaten, mocked and crucified, and on the third day I'll rise again. He walks into Jerusalem on a Sunday. He teaches the first part of the week. He's arrested, crucified on Friday, and rises again the following Sunday. So Palm Sunday, that Sunday of entry, is a Sunday before Easter. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all tell the story of the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, it's, it's important. In fact, one of the things you know, maybe you know about the Gospel of Mark, is that it's short. Mark must not have been a Baptist because he tells a story real quick, right? I mean, it's a short, in fact, I was, I, I, you know, it's a pretty, it's not a short drive from Oklahoma City to Hevener on a Sunday morning. And so when I got to about Okima, I started playing the Gospel of Mark. And I finished when I got to Poto. You can listen to the Gospel of Mark between here and Okima. The whole, the whole Gospel. It's not very long. Mark moves at a fast clip. But when he gets to chapter 11, he slows down. And he, he starts repeating things. Because he wants us to understand that, that how Jesus entered into Jerusalem is very important. It was important to Jesus, it was important to Mark, and it ought to be important to us. We learned some important truth about Jesus, and I think we hedge against holiday hypocrisy. You follow along 
I read out of the New American Standard Bible. You follow along as I read Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 11. As they, Jesus and the disciples, approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. I've, I've been there. In fact, I was there on Palm Sunday one time. And you, when you're standing up here on the hill of Mount of Olives, you look down across the valley and there's Jerusalem. It's not, it's not that far. He sent two of his disciples and said to them, verse 2, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a coat tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a coat tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing, untying the coat? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus, the young donkey, to Jesus, put their coats on it, and Jesus sat on it. Have, have you ever rid, ridden a donkey? Have you ever seen, ever in your life, anyone look cool riding a donkey? It's impossible, right? But Jesus gets up on this donkey, not with a proper blanket, but with their coats, and they spread their coats in the road, not the red carpet. And others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem. He came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late in the afternoon, late in the day. Let me tell you what these holiday hypocrites do, did on Passover. And then I'll, let me just lay it all out, then I'll walk through it slowly. They saw more than they understood. They said more than they meant. Then they went home for supper. And that is a pattern of holiday hypocrisy. There'll be a lot of people do that next week on Easter. They'll come to church because it's a religious holiday and they're supposed to come to church. They want to make mama happy. And they'll see more than they understand. They'll say more than they mean. They'll say, Jesus is Lord. What's for lunch? Right? Go home for supper. Now, let me show you what I mean in this text. First of all, look at the first part of verse 11. They saw more than they understood. Like I said, Mark's always in a hurry, but he goes into some detail here. And what he tells us is that the way Jesus enters Jerusalem is both important and intentional. There's this repetition where Jesus says to his disciples, go get this donkey, and if they ask you why you're taking it, tell them the Lord has need of it, and they'll let you have it. Now, there's two ways to understand this. Both are valid. It could be that, that this is just a, an evidence of the supernatural power of God. God miraculously provided that donkey, and Jesus knew it would be there. I got no argument with that. That very well may have been. 
It could also have been that Jesus made these arrangements. He had, in advance, prepared somebody to have that donkey ready. It doesn't really matter which of those is the case. What does matter, Mark tells us, is that we understand that Jesus took the time, went out of his way, in a very intentional process to make sure that on this day, when he entered Jerusalem, he was riding on a donkey. Why? Why is that? It's not, was he tired? Was he scared of horses? Why? Well, it, hold your finger there in Mark and flip back to Zechariah chapter 9. It's, I promise, Zechariah's in there somewhere. When I was a young pastor, I, I learned a lesson one time. I thought I'd play a joke on everybody and stood up and told them to open to Hezekiah chapter 2. And they all went to work on that. There's no book of Hezekiah in the Bible. And uh, I learned that's not really a good trick to play on people in church. But Zechariah is really there, I promise you. Now, Zechariah lived hundreds of years before Jesus. And Zechariah tells us a lot about what the Messiah is going to do, what he'll be like, who he will be, what he will do. He has a lot of Messianic prophecy. And when, when the Messiah, the Savior King, the Christ, when he comes... Look at one of the things Zechariah says, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, righteous, and endowed with salvation. He is humble and mounted on a donkey. Even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah says the Messiah is going to come and he's going to bring salvation with him and he's going to be righteous and just. But he's not going to be like all these other kinds of kings. He's not going to be like the Persian kings and the Roman kings. He's not going to come marching in on a white horse full of pomp and circumstance and pride. Not this time. He's going to be a humble savior king who will come riding on a donkey. So Jesus has already said to his disciples, boys, we're going to Jerusalem so I can lay my life down on the cross. Because I'm the Messiah and I've come to lay my life down on the cross of Calvary. And when he got to the edge of town, he stopped, waited right there until they got that donkey so he could hop up on top of it and parade into town. Jesus planned his own parade. And this parade has a purpose. And the purpose is twofold. I, Jesus is saying, I am indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior King promised in Scripture. But I might not be what you're expecting. I've come to lay down my life on the cross of Calvary. Well, they all saw this, but they didn't understand it. In fact, John in his gospel says the crowds were fickle and the disciples were clueless. Uh, they saw more than they understood. And they said more than they meant. Look at verse 9 and 10. Look at what they say. Verse 9 says, Those who went in front 
and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Now, some of your, some of your, your English translations of Scripture will show that something changes with the word Hosanna. And the reason it's set off differently, maybe indented differently or capitalized or italics, is from the word Hosanna all the way down through the end of verse 10. That's all a quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 118. There's, in other words, what they're shouting is a song. Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, And and if we had time, we won't take the time to do it tonight, but if we had time, we could flip back to Psalm 118 and realize that they're quoting Psalm 118, verse 25. They're singing that hymn. You see, they were Passover hymns. Just like we have Christmas carols and we have Easter hymns. Easter hymns, Christ the Lord is risen today, crowned him with many crowns, and we sing at Easter. We sing certain songs at Christmas. The Jews sang certain songs during the Passover. We know this. They sang Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, and 118. So what they're shouting when Jesus parades in is that Passover song, like we'd sing a Christmas carol at Christmas time. And so they're singing the song, and they're saying, Hosanna. That's a Hebrew word. And it's a Hebrew word that sometimes they used almost like we use the word hallelujah. We'll say hallelujah. Sometimes I don't even think about the fact that it means praise the Lord. We'll say amen, and we won't even think about the fact that it means that's right. So be it. I'll stand on that. Amen. And they would say Hosanna like it was just kind of a word that you say in church. But the word Hosanna actually means save us, we pray. And so here we have Jesus riding in on a donkey saying, I am the Messiah. And we have the crowds shouting, save us, please. But they don't really know what they're saying. Not fully. Now, Luke tells us that the religious authorities knew. Because when they saw Jesus on that donkey. And they heard the people saying, Hosanna. They said, Jesus, you better shut them up. You remember that? They can't say that. You better get off that donkey and hush them up. Because they're making a claim about you. You remember what Jesus said? See, I'll tell you the truth. If they stop saying Hosanna, the stones will cry out. You remember that? So they were shouting, Lord, save us, but they didn't, they didn't know what they were saying. You, ever, you think people will go to church on Easter Sunday and say things they don't really mean? Oh, w, when I think of Easter, I think of W.E. Sangster. He was a British pastor in the 19th century, great preacher, leader, and uh, really in kind of the prime of his ministry, he got what, I, I, I wasn't diagnosed in that day, but something like Lou Gehrig's disease, just a degenerative disease. He just got to where he couldn't stand behind the pulpit anymore. He got to where he couldn't function very well. He lost his voice. 
couldn't speak, couldn't preach. Even his hands got so shaky he couldn't write very much. And on his last Easter to be alive, with shaky hand, he scribbled out a letter to his daughter. And in that letter, W.E. Sangster said, it's a terrible thing to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, Hallelujah, He is risen. But, he continued writing, it would be far more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of people that say things, but they don't mean them. They, it's not really moving them. A lot of people saying Hosanna who have never really fallen on their knees in the presence of Jesus and cried out, Lord, save me. And that's what Hosanna means. They saw more than they understood. They said more than they meant. And then they went home for supper. Let me explain that. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm kind of using my imagination here. It's an important part of studying the scripture. And, and, and it's interesting how Mark ends that last day. The, the parade is over. Jesus gets off his donkey. He walks into the temple. And what we notice is that the crowds are gone. He walks into the temple, and after looking all around, he left for Bethany with just the twelve since it was already late. I mean, it's the Passover. These, these folk all have company. They've got to go home and get supper ready, entertain their guests, finish up their day, do their chores. It was a nice little parade. But now it's time to move on. And that's just what they did. They moved on with their week. Many of these same people in just five days will be standing at the back of the crowd saying, crucify him. Uh, what do you think Jesus was thinking when he stood in that temple and looked all around? You, you, you know, when I study all of the Gospels, I realize in Matthew chapter 21 that that in the same, when Matthew tells the story of the triumphal entry in that same chapter, Matthew has Jesus quoting Psalm 118, the same song. The same song that says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now Jesus is quoting it. Only he's quoting not verse 25, but verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And that same psalm by verse 27 is saying of the temple, bind the sacrifice to the altar. And I like to think that Jesus stand in that temple thinking about that old hymn and realizing that he indeed has been rejected. And that in just a few short days, his arms are going to be stretched out on the cross of Calvary. And when he draws a deep breath and cries out, it is finished, the veil in the temple 
will be torn in two from top to bottom. That place of sacrifice will be needed no more. Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, laid down his life on the cross of Calvary once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Nobody took his life from him. He rode into Jerusalem. He went right to the place of sacrifice. And he stood preparing himself for what was about to happen. So, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's interesting. Jesus, Jesus just offers two options. Either you accept me as the very foundation for your life, the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the King, Lord, or you reject me. The, the, the holiday hypocrite is always looking for a third option, isn't he? Trying to figure out a way, maybe when I could honor him with my lips but keep my heart far from him. Maybe say more than I mean. Go through the motions. Get home and eat some lunch. Go on about my business. Jesus is having none of that. That's why Luke tells us that when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he surveys the city, remember? And he weeps. He's weeping over Jerusalem. He says, oh, I wanted to gather you up like a mama hen gathers up her chicks. But you were not willing. You remember that? You did not recognize the day of your visitation. I think he's thinking about all that when he stands in the temple. That Sunday evening about like this. Aren't you glad that he didn't turn around and go back home to Galilee? That he laid down his life on the cross of Calvary for you and for me? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this beautiful text. I, I thank you for, the, for your inspired word, the way that you moved Mark to put down this text just this way so that we might understand ourselves and our neighbors better, more importantly, so that we might understand Jesus more clearly for who he is, the King of kings, the Christ, just with all the power he needs to save us yet humble riding on a donkey laying down his life and we do cry out with your word hosanna lord save us blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna blessed is the coming king jesus and Father, I pray now that we'd not just go on business as usual, but that we would take every step and draw every breath fully aware of who you are, of all you've done for us, who you call us to be as your disciples. Lord Jesus, thank you for 
riding into Jerusalem to lay down your life for us. Thank you for your willing sacrifice, once and for all sufficient. Father, I pray that not a single person here this evening would walk out of this room without having from the depths of their heart cried out, Hosanna, Lord, save me. Save me. Let's continue with heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment. Pastor Jim will be here at the front, and we'll sing an invitation song. It could be, I want to ask you to consider two things during this invitation tonight. One is, maybe even here on Sunday evening, you realize you kind of gone through the motions seeing things you don't understand, saying things you don't really mean, going on about your normal patterns. This, this evening you realize you've never had a life-changing encounter with Christ. Lord, I'm the sinner. Save me. You could come to faith in Christ tonight. And then many of you here, as Easter approaches, you might have family members or neighbors Friends, those you work with or go to school with, you know they're lost. They don't know Jesus. They might come to church with you on Easter. Everybody knows how to go to church on Easter. You might want to come and use one of these front pews or these front steps as an altar and just pray and say, God, would you use me to get my friend, my loved one, to Jesus? Get him to church on Easter. Would you stir their hearts? You come and kneel before the Lord and he'll honor that this evening. Let's stand together and sing. And as we're singing, you respond.